You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. How are you doing? I am great. We had that one glorious week where we were actually both able to be in the studio, and that has slipped through our fingers. Yep, and I phoned you on my drive to Richmond, and you were distracted by the work you were doing, and I was distracted by my drive, distracted Mm -hmm. by driving. I guess uh, my obligation is to pay attention to my driving and not to be distracted by being on the phone, but in any event. Yeah, my work was driving defense, so. So there you go. So um, my point being that that, uh, I really don't know what we're talking about today. Oh, well, (laughs) there's lots to talk about today. Um, Obviously, we need to talk about this recent BC Supreme Court case dealing with IRPs. Okay, well, that's a good thing to talk about. That was an interesting case for many yeah. reasons. Yeah. When did yeah, it come out? Did it just come out today? Uh, it came out November 26th, mm. but I don't think it was published till Monday. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, give us the rundown. So this is a case about the second test, and as you know, the second test is kind of like a really frustrating aspect of the IRP scheme. So Mr., um, oh gosh, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, CYCA? Chica? I don't Saika? know. Saika? Saisa? Saisa? I don't know. Anyway. Saisa? It's uh, the petitioner. CYCA <laughs> and the superintendent yeah. of motor vehicles. Yes. So he um, was issued a prohibition. Um, it was not really much of a dispute. He was stopped at a roadblock. Uh, he dealt with Constable Bevan. He was read an AFD demand. There was a 15-minute waiting period for residual mouth alcohol. Then he provided a sample that registered a fail reading, and then he was determined to be a candidate for the IRP program. Uh, The officer read him the notice of prohibition, read him the right to request a second test, and then informed him that the lower of the two tests would prevail. He said, I don't want to make a decision right now. I want to talk to a lawyer. So Constable Irvine's like, fine, go get your phone, call a lawyer. Um, I'm going to begin preparing the documentation you have only until the documents are served on you to request the test. So you have no idea. You have no idea how long that's going to take. Anyway. No, of <laughs> so, course not. I, I'm, so, I'm speaking of the facts of the case. I interrupted you. I apologize. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> so the officer then goes back. Um, the petitioner gets his cell phone, uh, speaks with an acquaintance um, uh, instead of calling legal counsel, and then uh, gets information about how the second test can benefit him. And uh, he thanks his friend, who happens to be a police officer, hangs up, and he says he goes to Constable Bevan and says that he wants to blow again. This is the only dispute in the evidence, really. Constable Bevan says that he served him the notice of prohibition, that my client, or that the, the petitioner wasn't my client, the petitioner didn't request a second test, Um, that he was walking up and down the adjacent sidewalk. And then about a minute after being served the notice of prohibition, he requested the second test, and Constable Bevan said, too late now. So essentially, this is the dispute in the evidence. Was it before or after the documents were served? 
Yes. And, and, and the petitioner said that he wasn't told that he had to ask for it before being served with the paperwork. No, I didn't think that was it. I think the the yeah. I think the I'm petitioner from the judgment. Oh, okay. Mr. Sykes stated it was not until after he denied me the chance to do the second breathalyzer that he then told me there was a time limit, which he now said was up as soon as he served me with the paperwork. He did not tell me that before. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So. So those are the, the, the those are the facts. Not a lot in dispute. Um, and the issue was whether or not his right to a second test was breached, at least before the adjudicator, that was the issue. And the adjudicator found that uh, she preferred the evidence of the officer. And I'm going to read... You're no surprise I normally do this. Yeah. No, I don't normally do this, but I'm actually going to read what uh, the adjudicator said, because it's pretty important here. Uh, so the adjudicator said, the uncontroverted evidence before me is that you requested the second analysis after service of the notice. With no evidence to the contrary, I accept that as fact. Accordingly, I find the notice had taken effect prior to your request for a second analysis, and therefore Constable Bevan was not legally obligated and likely not authorized to provide you with a second analysis when you requested it uh, because the notice already took effect. As such, I do not agree with your lawyer's position that Constable Bevan created an arbitrary time frame within which you were required to request a second analysis. I find that to interpret the right to a second analysis otherwise would lead to an unworkable scheme where drivers could arbitrarily delay requesting second tests as the roadside, uh, where they and police sometimes remain for quite some time after service of the notice, waiting for a tow truck to attend and transportation away from the scene in order to allow for the elimination of alcohol. I find this analysis settles the issue before me in this review. Yeah, I read it along while you were... Right. Saying. Okay. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, two things. One, I think it highlights sort of this unfairness that's inherent in the second test. Another example of unfairness that's inherent in the second test provisions in the scheme. But secondly, I think it emphasizes, and I want to talk about each of these issues separately, I think it emphasizes the need to be very clear as lawyers with our clients about what information has to be in the evidentiary record to succeed in an argument and the need for a person giving evidence to be very clear on all of those points in order to succeed. Yeah, I mean, in the end, the judge sides with the adjudicator's decision uh, in this review and does so um, because of a lack of clarity in that evidence. But, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the problems brought up by the adjudicator are valid problems you know my my issue is that just because they're valid problems doesn't mean that it's our job to be making it either easier or harder for the police it's a it's a problem with the legislation and i don't think it should be interpreted in such a manner that um that makes it impossible for people there at the roadside i mean no but i I mean she 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 makes a good point right when she says look, like you could be there for 20 or 30 or 40 minutes or even an hour after service of the notice and then to go up to the police and be like, hey, I want a second test, actually. That, that is ridiculous. Like that's not obviously not in keeping with the, the spirit of the legislation. Um, and the legislation does say, it's explicit, it says you must request the second test forthwith. But that is also ridiculous. 
Um, and what is forthwith? I mean, probably probably five minutes, maybe three no. to five minutes. What if you're waiting for a less second than, device? Um, less than five minutes yeah. <laughs> by the, the interpretation of forthwith that we've seen in uh, ASD delay cases. It's less than five minutes. We'll, yeah. will not offend forthwith. My, my point there is that one should be entitled to have a moment. So when it comes to the first ASD test, you're detained. You're not entitled to talk to a lawyer. You are, uh, you know, the original idea was that the results would not be used against you for any purpose except for a police officer to form grounds for further detention. Now, of course, in BC, we use it for the purpose of punishing people. So you're detained. You don't get to stop, talk to a lawyer. You provide a sample, and then you get punished with an IRP. And they exploit this loophole um, that you don't get a lawyer, uh, despite the fact that it's a warrantless search and you're detained arbitrarily and so forth. Um, yeah. But then when it comes to the second test, are you not detained anymore? I mean, you, you can't leave until you're served the documents. Um, you know, usually you're there mulling around with your car trying to figure out what you're going to do next. Um, you know, how long do they have to to give it and in this case it sounded like the officer gave him i you know an arbitrary time period but to, it's not arbitrary it even says on the irp information i know card, but the police officer created one here it says forthwith how? i know by if if indeed no. he said yeah no. you can call a lawyer it i don't says care on the irp information card you must request the second test forthwith and in any event prior to service of the notice of prohibition Okay, so I guess he didn't create an arbitrary amount, but the point is you don't know how long it's going to be that he's going to take no. to serve that prohibition. I well, mean, if the officer says it takes me five minutes or it takes me three minutes or it takes me ten minutes to fill this thing out, you right. get a junior officer who doesn't know what they're doing. You might get 15 minutes. You get some. That's the unfairness, is that it's, it's arbitrary in the sense of you don't know how mm. long it's going to be, and so... You know, whether you can make that call to legal counsel or whether you can work through all the issues in your head or whether you can think about it, you know, that's a, that's a problem. I mean, they could write wow. something in the legislation. You have five minutes now to decide whether or not you want to provide another sample. If during that time, uh, you know, I have to keep you under constant observation. There's nothing that stops yeah. somebody from, from consuming something in that five-minute time. You know, no. you could drink a lot of water and say, I want my sample now. I want it forthwith. Change your test. No, I, a lot of well, maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe you can cool things down in your mouth. I'm just saying it probably won't, but like, you're not allowed to do it before the first test. <laughs> Are you allowed to do it before the second test? Do they have to have a five-minute waiting period then? I mean, it's, there's all sorts of complicating things that can take place between mm -hmm. the first and second test. You are no longer detained. The police officer cannot demand that you do something. Okay. Now... Here's the issue, the sort of ethical issue for lawyers here. So if anybody's listening that's a lawyer that does IRP defense, right? Like this guy lost, according to the judicial review judgment, he didn't lose because the adjudicator chose to believe Constable Bevan over him. He lost because there was an absence of evidence from him, and he bore the burden of proof to show that the second test was not conducted when requested. He lost because he didn't provide that crucial evidentiary point, meeting the legislative requirement of saying, I asked for this before he gave me the paperwork. All he had to have in his affidavit or his statement or whatever he submitted to the adjudicator was, was a few words that says, before he gave me the papers, 
or whatever, like whatever, you know, variation on it. All he had to do was say that. And there would have been a conflict in the evidence that the adjudicator had to resolve. But instead, on this critical point that the legislation defines as the point at which you have to make your decision about whether or not you're going to take a second test, because once the notice is served, the second test can't happen, um, he was silent about. Yeah, he failed to put in evidence about that aspect of it. And, as and a that's consequence, why as a lawyer... What's that? You, that's why as a lawyer, you, you need to know. Like, all of these tiny, tiny little minutiae of defending an IRP. But you know, and I know, that you, know, you I can know, cover yeah. everything and you can cover it three ways from Sunday, and they'll set up a test that's almost unknowable or is unknowable to come at it some other way. So, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you do everything you possibly can to make it impossible for the adjudicator. You know, you, you try and get out all of those facts that you need to get out. Right. So the adjudicator can't do this to you, but the adjudicator will just find some other way to interpret the... Or, or reject your evidence, right? So. See, but you and I are talking about different things. You're talking about an adjudicator coming to the conclusion that somebody is less believable because they did or didn't do this. But here, the adjudicator said, I don't have to decide who to believe. Because, because you never failed to give me that evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, this is a, a one thing that we see on judicial review that people are successful on often is credibility disputes, the sort of the the crux of most judicial review cases is resolving these credibility disputes, but there has to be the dispute in the play in the first place. And so we see a lot of cases that are successful where there's a dispute in the evidence and the adjudicator sidesteps it. They pretend that it's not there. They say there's no conflict. They ignore the evidence of a conflict in order to prefer a piece of evidence without resolving a discrepancy. You know, Moft is a per- perfect example of that. I just had one that went back um, very recently for rehearing uh, by consent because there was a clear conflict in the evidence. The adjudicator relied on a statement made to the officer about the time of last drink that was disputed and never addressed the my client's evidence about disputing it and said, you know, you said this and now you're saying this, but that wasn't what he was saying. So, you know, making sure that you have those conflicts in the evidence to force the adjudicator at least where they exist, (laughs) to force the adjudicator into a credibility analysis as opposed to saying, I have uncontroverted evidence so I can accept that without any further analysis. That is so critical. And as a lawyer, you have an ethical obligation both to canvas all of those evidentiary details that go to the heart of the legislative grounds of review, but also to advise your client if they can't, you know, say that thing about the conflict that, you know, this is going to have a negative impact on you, or you're not going to be successful if you can't say this. Well, and some are not successful, which is why we don't conduct hearings in every case, right? You know, there's Mm -hmm. lots of times that you're looking at it and you're saying, well, this appears to raise this. Then you talk to the client and you find out, no, <laughs> it, it doesn't. And in fact, mm-hmm. the client's evidence is clearer than the police officer's and patches up the police officer's case. I often see that <laughs> yeah. in, in, in delay, for example. Oh, yeah, no, no, is, he was dead. <laughs> you know, this is part of the, the sort of the fairness of it, too, because, you know, in Lemieux, the Court of Appeals said, oh, you don't have to 
provide evidence to discharge your burden of proof. You can point to flaws in the underlying record as a ground to have the prohibition set aside, which is effectively what it looks like this individual, Mr. Sika, was doing. He was saying, I asked for a second test. The evidence is clear, but I didn't get one. But the problem is it's not a flaw in the evidentiary record where the request for the second test is not actually made. So. Yep. Well, it's too bad because it's a, it's a frustrating thing for people because you're there at the roadside. You're told you're not allowed to talk to a lawyer before you provide the first sample. The second mm -hmm. sample, it's implied that you're not allowed to talk to a lawyer, but you are, in fact, allowed to try and talk to a lawyer. Uh, the mm -hmm. only thing is the expectation is that you're going to respond forthwith. And mm -hmm. forthwith in the context of police, um, for you to make that decision is now, this second, uh, before you talk to a lawyer, and uh, forthwith in the context of a police officer having to do all their duties that they're required to do immediately, formerly forthwith, uh, is often given a surprisingly flexible interpretation. <laughs> so uh, the double standard, the old double standard, and it's so damn confusing because the first sample is required, no charter, standard. and then the second one, you know, can you walk away? No, but you don't get to talk to a lawyer but you've got to make a difficult life decision there. And I would tell you, if you phoned me in between, I'd say take a bunch of deep breaths before you I provide that second sample because you might get a more accurate reading than you got on the first one. I can't believe you didn't even like acknowledge my great parody there. You started singing. I was talking over you. It was a great parody. Let's hear it again. Give them the old double standard. Double standard them. Okay, moving on. <laughs> I don't know what that's from. It's from Chicago. Okay, sure. Isn't the old razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle? Okay, yep. Okay. I don't understand moving your, on your cultural reference. Biased experts. Okay, let's move on to bias. Speaking of things that should and shouldn't be in evidence, Paul, yeah. here's something that shouldn't be in evidence if you are an expert. So we talked about credibility. Deciding credibility is not for witnesses. Witnesses don't comment on the credibility of one or more of the parties or participants. They don't comment on each other's credibility. You're even in cross-examination prohibited from, you know, asking somebody about, you know, you get tons of wide latitude and cross. You can't ask somebody how believable somebody else's evidence is. Which is really him. ridiculous, you know, when you think about it. Yeah. The judge doesn't know the judge doesn't know the person. The judge is there for you know a couple of hours. The other person's dealt with them for forever. You know, the other person should be able to comment. Why do we defer all of this to judges no you know, don't know anything about the situation? Anyway, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So this is an individual who was uh, sent to an ICBC independent medical expert after being involved in three motor vehicle accidents. Uh, they claimed uh, that they were experiencing injuries, and ICBC's like, nah, you're defrauding us. So, um, uh, so they asked for a report from a Dr. Hawkswood, an independent medical uh, evaluator, to determine whether or not the injuries were to the extent that he claimed that they were. Uh, the cases uh, Didiuk and uh, Redlick is the style of cause, 2021 BCSC 2272. 
you can also find a good summary of it on Eric McGracken's blog, bcu-injury-law.com. So <laughs> the report is, like, insane. Like, there's a great summary of it in the judgment of some of the things that the, the expert concludes. Um, it sort of begins at paragraph 25 of the, of the judgment where the court talks about um, uh, whether the, the report has a, uh, an air of, of bias to it. And at paragraph 25, there's a bunch of experts about the Dr. Hawkswood's report containing a number of examples in which he usurped the court's role by making very clear assessments of credibility. He says things like, Based on my own observations, I question Mr. Didiak's honesty with reporting of his symptoms. In other words, I strongly feel he was misleading me. Based on the above, I question the reliability of all his subjective symptoms. Doesn't this sound like, it, like an adjudicator's decision? I question the reliability. The preponderance of DSM-5 criteria are predicated on an authentic subjective mental health complaint. I am not convinced he has significant psychopathology based on reasons provided already. Malingering seems like an appropriate term, recognizing this is impossible to prove one way or another. I nonetheless believe malingering probably does actually exist in some select instances, and based on my relatively lay understanding of this challenging concept, it would seem appropriate here. Frankly, Mr. Didiak's dramatic presentation during today's assessment raises the question of what injuries he actually sustained by way of these three minor motor vehicle accidents. That is bad. So, that is bad. And ICBC yeah, wanted to tender it. that? Uh-huh. They did tender it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So was he cross-examined on it, or was it just tendered as a, uh, and rejected on a, the basis of the, on the, on the facial validity, more or less? So there was a voir dire on the admissibility of it, yeah. and, uh, then the, the, admissibility question went solely to whether there was impartiality, independence, and the absence of bias. Um, and so uh, the court says at paragraph 33, as I will put out below, I am satisfied that this is one of those rare instances in which the expert opinion evidence should be excluded on this basis. Well, that's terrible for that person as an expert because now that's yeah. going to be the decision that's out there that's used against him, and he might do a great job 364 days of the year and did one bad report. Oh, no, 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 because the court actually goes into how he obtained the facts on which he based his completely partial uh, assessment of credibility. So he, like, spied on Mr. Didiak while he was in the waiting room, Oh at a time that he was not aware that he was being observed. And then he used those observations of him in the waiting room as like a baseline by which he measured him when he was doing a medical assessment. Um, isn't that insane? That's awful. <laughs> and, and he called it a fact-finding mission. Um, and the court's like, no, 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 this tainted You're not a private you. investigator. Yeah, you're, not, you're, yeah, you're a exactly. doctor. You're supposed to be doing an objective medical assessment of the person when they yeah. come into your office. You're not supposed and to. And he hasn't—he hasn't spoken with the guy. He hasn't conducted a physical examination. He's literally just watching him in a waiting room and making conclusions about his, like, level of injuries. Um, and he—he uh, he relied on all sorts of things uh, outside the formal uh, uh, examination, including the fact that he was on the phone, and he didn't seem to be obviously affected by any medical condition that he was wearing a leather jacket and his hair 
was combed backwards. But then uh, when he was in the exam room, his hair was looking like he just woke up and got out of bed and it was disheveled and matted for- forward on his forehead and basically suggesting that he like altered his physical appearance between the waiting room and the exam room to try and pull one over on the doctor. Oh my goodness. I mean, yeah. nobody, I, that just seems so unlikely. Um, yeah. <laughs> and maybe taking off the leather jacket is hard. Maybe he's only got a leather jacket. Uh, maybe taking off the leather jacket leads you to, to disturb your hair. I mean, does he? <laughs> maybe he's on the Boy, phone call awful. and he gets bad news and <clears throat> runs his hands through his hair, messing it up. Yeah. Like... What the hair? The hair. <laughs> Let's make the assessment of this guy on the basis of spying on him in the waiting room and assessing his hairstyle. He even compares the guy. He says. You know, when I did the physical examination, it seemed to me that he has a degree of depression. But when I spied on him in the waiting room, he didn't look depressed. <laughs> and that reminds me of something that happened to me when I was in university. Oh, my like gosh. First, in my first year of university, I had, like, a depressive episode. You're supposed to just and be actually, walking around looking down, crying the entire time? You're depressed? Well, that was the expectation that they placed on me. I had a, a medical accommodation through the school because of it. And... um uh, and so I was like missing a lot of classes because I was struggling. And one day my French class professor saw me in the student union building, presumably with some friends. I don't know when he saw me because I didn't see him. But I like later went to him and I was like, I'm supposed to get more time for this. And he said, well, I don't really believe your accommodation because I saw you in the student union building laughing and smiling with your friends. So you can't be that depressed. What an asshole. Like, yeah. <laughs> First of all, like, Maybe I was. Maybe I was having a good moment. But I also had, like, some classes that we had to go through the student union building to get to. Uh, maybe I was just walking to a class. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I was yeah. profoundly depressed through my much of my BA. Um, and um, some days I was barely functional. And, you know, I still managed to walk through, and I still managed to talk to the odd person, and I still managed to laugh every once in a while. Usually at myself. Um, had so this is a, <laughs> there is a realistic concern that Dr. Hawkswood is unable or unwilling to provide the court with fair and objective and nonpartisan evidence. Yep. Well. Throughout the report. Yep. Goodbye. Well, there you go. Some yep. experts don't understand their role. A good. Hello. Uh, hello. You can't hear me. Hello, hello. Yeah, you cut out there for a second. Hi. Yeah, no, I was here. I said some experts oh. don't understand their role, so it's a good lesson to the experts to uh, to don't go well, through that level of investigation and don't comment on the credibility. A good lesson to the lawyers that listen to this podcast of what you need to look for when you're looking at an expert report. If there's some suggestion uh, about the fact-finding role of the, of the court on credibility then that might be enough to get the expert report kicked. Yeah, and uh, don't go using an expert report if it's like that, because A, you just damage your own case, and B, you damage the career of that expert, who, although you know it appears that it was more than just one bad day, uh, may have mm. produced uh, you know 100 great reports over the course of his or her career. Well, I'm sure if you asked any ICBC uh, plaintiff personal injury lawyer, they would not say that... Um, 
that experts for ICBC produce great reports over the course of their careers. No, and one would imagine that there's a lot of lawyers who are looking at the reports, other reports that were produced by this fellow or produced by this expert or produced by some other ICBC expert to see whether or not there's some language that's similar in there because uh, these, uh, that, that expert may have, uh, there may be other experts who produce reports that have similar language that's just been overlooked. So I've left a little extra time this week, Paul, because this week's Ridiculous Driver is awesome. Let's hear it. Okay, it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. So this is an arrest that took place on uh, November 18th um, in Florida, of all oh, places. Florida. <laughs> um, essentially, an officer pulls over a vehicle that's attached to a uh, prohibited driver. They find the guy who's driving, happens to be a prohibited driver, um, and uh, he's under arrest for prohibited driving. And so he gets put in the back. Uh, with his girlfriend, who's the passenger, because she gave her driver's license to him to pass it off as though he was her. So they're both arrested. She's they're arrested for arrested. some sort of like obstruction, obstruction or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, uh, he's placed in the back of the patrol car, and uh, then she says, Baby, we should record an OnlyFans video back here. Awesome. And then she but how asks, do they have their asks, cameras? Or she asks the officer, she says, what if I suck his dick back here? And, of course, the officer's like, no, you can't do that. Um, but of you course the officer's, of course the officer, you never know, this is Florida. Anyway, so the officer <laughs> indicates that this would be not appropriate. Don't do that, please, nope. Um, and he tells them, look, I'm just going to drive you to the shell so you can get a ride so you can go home. And the, uh, uh, she interrupts again, um, and she says, can I suck his dick back here? And again, he says no. Uh, and then he tells them, he leaves them alone in the back of the car. He says, give me a couple minutes. We're going to leave shortly. He closes the patrol door, car, patrol vehicle door, starts to walk away to deal with the other officer. And That's then entrapment. What, That's what entrapment, Kyla. That's not entrapment. It's not entrapment to present somebody with the opportunity to commit an offense. Um, he he close, closes the door, walks away, and the guy takes his penis out of his shorts. And she begins to do exactly what she said that she was going to do. She sucks his dick in the back of the patrol car. This is all captured on the patrol car's Prisoner, prisoner compartment camera. So it's all on video. Fully, fully provable. Well, yeah. But did she manage to record it somehow? Because she's not well, getting that patrol car video. While she's going down on him, he's yelling, fuck 5 <laughs> And can y'all hear me? She's sucking dick in the back of a state trooper right now. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, and uh, the defendant uh, is recording um, uh, using their phone. They're recording it using a cell phone. 
Um, and then they go on FaceTime. They FaceTime their friends. And she's like, I just sucked his dick in the back of a police car. <laughs> how long do how, they leave them in there? How much evidence can you possibly How long do they leave them in there? Yeah, I know, but I mean, is it, is it, what's the offense? Well, it's 40 seconds of uh, lewd and lascivious behavior. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I guess, yeah. Yeah. If uh, that's the offense, 40... then they committed the offense. But I mean, it seems like a pretty private place. It's probably can't see in very easily. <laughs> No reasonable expectation of privacy in the back of a police vehicle, Paul. True, it's government property, too. Yep, yep. I'm right. pretty sure there's a law against having sex on government property. Yeah. I, I don't so, know. I don't so know. I still, I'm, I'm still going with my entrapment defense. <laughs> she warned them. She warned them, look. Alone, they're yeah. left alone in the car to answer your question at 221. By 2.25, the oral sex is done, and he's FaceTiming his friends. And 2.33, they take him out of the vehicle because they found some drugs in his car and uh, arrested him. Oh, well, there you go. So he's got another defense then. Yeah. Men's the rare defense. <laughs> the police did not even discover until after they dropped them off. Like, no issues. They drove him to the shell thinking everything's fine. I don't know how the car didn't smell like sex. Um, but they, they drop them off at the show and then he goes back to watch the video footage to fill out his report and that's when he sees the, uh, the dirty video that they, they made for him. Well, I mean, nobody was bothered by it. Uh, the only person who observed it in the end was a police officer. As far as I'm concerned, there's no reason for them to be charged, but, uh, well, laughed at for sure. Florida. <laughs> so he drives back to the show and they're still there. So he arrests them and takes them to jail. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, that's a sour grapes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I just, I love it. Everything well, that's a good one. Case. That's a great one. Buck five a... Yeah. <laughs> that's a great one. Good, ridiculous driver. And once again from Florida. And it's not just a Florida man. It's a Florida couple this time. So. It's a Florida yeah. couple. It's yeah. love. It's true love. It is. It's love. Yeah. And who can condemn love? Mm -hmm. The Florida State Troopers. There you go. Okay. Well, poo-poo to them. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's it, Kyla. Yeah, that's our podcast. So, if you have any driving law-related questions, uh, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889. And if you want to find us online, we're at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.